0: Hello, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whatever time it is for you. I just wanted to cover a few points before we get started. If you are watching on YouTube, we apologize that there is no video at this time. Unfortunately, there were many technical difficulties while recording this podcast, ranging from bad internet to camera malfunctions to bad audio quality, (laughs) so I just had to salvage what I could in editing. We hope to get back to high-quality audio and video in our next podcast. We have big things planned in the coming months for for the book podcast, So, make sure to subscribe on YouTube and click the YouTube bell. Follow us on Facebook and also follow us on any podcasting platform. A reminder that the next three reviews left on Apple Podcasts will be read on the show. Also, head over to our new Instagram account and follow us there because we have huge things planned there. On any social media or podcasting site, just type in Hear the Book Pod, Hear the Book Pod, and we should pop up. The book we'll be reviewing today on the show is Ever Reforming by Andy Woods. Dr. Woods pastors a church down in Texas and is the president of Chafer Theological Seminary. In his book, Ever Reforming, Dr. Woods thoroughly discusses the history of the church and explains how the Protestant Reformation was extremely important, yet still needs to be clarified and built upon with scripture. Without further ado, on with the show.
1: Hello, I'd like to welcome you, our viewers, to our fourth podcast. Greeting you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We call our podcast, The Book. We chose that name because it encapsulates our desire to deepen your knowledge of Scripture and point you to others that can help you as well. Our goal is to review those books which will deepen your understanding of the book. Ultimately, our podcast is, is designed to enrich your life and deepen your appreciation for our Savior, the Lord of Glory. As always, I'm your host, Scott Moffat. Even though you can't see me, I am joined by our podcasters, Gabriel Penfield and Gary Karwaski. We hope to share with you works written by seasoned men of God that can inform you of deeper truths. If you haven't checked out our previous three podcasts, we encourage you to do so. Once, there could, we could ask you to hit the subscribe button, and that's down at the bottom right then you will not miss another exciting edition of the book. Today we review the book Ever Reforming, and we are joined by its author, Dr. Andy Woods. Welcome, Dr. Woods.
2: Great to be here with you guys. Thanks for having me.
1: Thank you for coming. We understand that you are the senior pastor at Sugarland Bible Church in Sugarland, Texas, and you are currently the president of Chafer Seminary. That makes you a very busy man. I'd be remiss if I didn't acknowledge it. You are also a fellow Dallas Seminary alumnus.
2: Yay! Yeah.
1: Dr. Woods, would it be okay if we called you Andy?
2: Please, yeah, thank you.
1: Okay. So I'd like to begin by asking you, I know that you're an author of many, many books. I've seen them listed on Amazon, and I couldn't even count. I think there's like 20. Uh, You're a prolific author. And um, you also have a YouTube channel, and other platforms as well. My wife and I never miss one of your PPOVs on Fridays, and we chose this book out of the many that you have written because of the current dysfunction which we see in the larger evangelical church today. Can we begin our time together with a larger question? Andy, why did you choose to write this book?
2: Well, I had a chance to um, go on a co lead a Reformation cruise uh, around the 500th year anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. So I did some teaching on the cruise, and we, were, we actually toured, you know, the historic uh, Wittenberg, Germany, where the whole Protestant Reformation started, saw the first church of the Reformation where Martin Luther preached, and et etc. et cetera. And I came home from that, and I decided to teach a Sunday school class on the significance of the Reformation. Since at that time, the Reformation was coming up in terms of the 500th year anniversary. And uh, I just wanted to communicate to people why the Protestant Reformation was a big deal. You know, what it accomplished and what it did not accomplish. And that turned into about a 14-week Sunday school series. And from there, um, we just took uh, the transcripts you know, of that Sunday school series and turned it into book form. And so that's how the whole project came into existence. Yeah,
0: it's definitely a topic that puts people off um, church history. A lot of people don't want to study it or don't have a good knowledge of it. Um, after 100 AD, um, once Roman Catholic Catholicism, once bad ideas, once the church at Alexandria started taking over, but also before the Reformation – So in that kind of time period, did anybody ever get the gospel right? Or was it just Roman Catholicism, work, salvation for that whole time?
2: Well, you know, Jesus said the gates of Hades, you know, will not prevail against the church. And so I would assume that there's always a remnant somewhere. You know, we may not have a historical record Mm -hmm. of them, you know, because of the illiteracy and things like that of the Dark Ages. Um, there's a few, you know, glimpses of hope. I try to, I think I quote uh, Pseudo-Ephraim in there, who makes a, this isn't the gospel, but it's a strong, uh, in my opinion, a strong pre-tribulational rapture statement. So, and that would be like the 5th century, right in there. So there's a few scraps of things like that. Um, We don't have a lot of abundant evidence of it, but at the end of the day, you know, I just rely on what Jesus said, that he won't let the gates of hell prevail against the church. So whether we have record of it or not, I'm assuming there's some, there's always going to be some kind of preservation of the God.
0: Hmm. Yeah. Gary, do you have
3: anything to ask after that? I do. I do. I do. Um, you speak of two churches. I am in two cities. The Alexandria and Antioch, and you describe the difference between those two teachings. Would you like to tell our audience what those two are?
2: Yeah, and and the reason I went into that is I wanted people to understand what the Reformers rescued us from. You know, I think sometimes in our Protestant Reformation teaching, we don't really explain the problem you can't understand the problem you don't understand really the solution so my understanding of it is and a lot of this i get from um bernard ram in his book mm, Protestant Classic. Biblical interpretation but there were very early on in church history these two centers of thought there was the school of of uh, antioch up north and it's interesting you can trace apostolic uh uh Individuals to that school. And these were people that held basically to a very literal understanding of the Bible, including Bible prophecy. And down south, uh, there was another school in Alexandria, Egypt, North Africa. I think heavily um, influenced by Gnosticism. They basically taught an allegorical method of interpretation. So right there at the dawn of Christian history, you see these two centers of thought and the tragedy of church history. And this is why we had the so-called dark ages is Alexandria. um, Eclipsed um, the school up North. And the, you know, It's hard to really get your mind around, but that plunged us into over a thousand years of what I would call the Dark Ages. And that's what the Protestant reformers literally started to drag us out of, you know, at the beginning of the 16th century.
3: Hmm. Yeah, there were a lot of um, factors that threw Europe into the Dark Ages. among those are uh, the Roman Catholic Church mass which was said in Latin no, nobody understood it um, the fact that people did not have access to Bibles in their own language no. um, the fact that most of them couldn't even read even if even if they even if they had one um, and there's uh, there are others how did the reformers, and we we can go back to earlier than Martin Luther, how did the reformers, how were they able to overcome a thousand years of dark ages?
2: Yeah, you know, my understanding of Luther is what really upset Luther was the sale of indulgences. You know, ah, yes. coin coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs, And in the providence of God, Luther became a professor of Greek. And he started to study the book of Galatians in Greek Mm -hmm. and to teach it. And he started to see that the things that were abusing people, you know, the doctrine of purgatory, uh, the idea that you've got to go through a priest to get to God, you know, the idea that you can't understand the scripture on your own. I mean, he basically saw that this was these abuses that people were under, you know, was incompatible with the word of God. And so I I think what Luther returned us to is the literal, grammatical, historical, contextual method of interpretation. And you see Luther using the word literal in his writings all of the time. Mm -hmm. And that's why he was so passionate about translating the Bible into the language of the German people. And Luther, when he did it, and when we were there in Wittenberg, I asked our guide about this because this is a big issue. I said, when Luther made that translation, did he go from the Latin Vulgate, which was basically the Roman Catholic version, you know, going back to Jerome in the fourth century, did he make the translation from the Latin Vulgate into german and they said absolutely not he went back to the original greek and it took him i think 11 months and then he went back to the original hebrew and and did the old testament i think that if i remember right it took him 11 years
3: Uh, that sounds about right Mm -hmm.
2: but there were a lot of other issues that were going on in his life at the time that were interrupting him you know because of his prominence but you know, he was very careful to go, Not he didn't trust the Vulgate, in other words. He didn't trust the Roman Catholic version. He wanted to go back to the original Greek and the original Hebrew, and he wanted to show people that these abuses that they're under are man-made. They're not from God. And so he, you know, wanted to put the Bible into the language of the common man. So that meant he had an interest in literacy, raising the literacy rate. And he established the idea I don't think he invented it. It's in the Bible, but he called it the priesthood of all believers. Yeah. That all of us have our own relationship with the Lord. And all of us should be able to read the Bible on our own. And we don't have to go through a, a priest who has some kind of ascended knowledge, you know, to get the truth of what God says. Because if we agree with that, then we're set up for abuse again. Yeah. So I think that's those are the tools Luther used, and I think yeah. those are the t- same tools we need to use as we, you know, keep pressing forward, because the church Absolutely. is always in need
3: of reformation in other areas. Yes. So the reformers did a really a great job at reforming soteriology, salvation. You speak in your book about the five solas: Scripture alone, Christ alone, faith alone grace alone to God be the glory alone that is outstanding however the thesis of your book is they didn't take the Reformation far enough uh, what areas particularly what particular area did they fail in and it's even it's even failure through today for many churches believe this stuff about the end times we're gonna is what we're going to get to and so, Uh, How is it that the reformers couldn't pick up any, go any further than just soteriology?
2: I was just talking to a friend of mine a few hours ago on this subject, and he gave me this great word picture of a guy climbing out of the quicksand. And if you can think of someone climbing out of of a pit of quicksand and getting rescued, he's still got all this muck and gunk on him, you know, that doesn't just disappear until he goes and cleans himself off. And I said, wow, that's a great word picture for the reformers because they, yep, the thing to understand about them is they were Catholics and they actually wanted to stay, they wanted to stay Catholic. They had no intention of starting a new movement. And Luther, you know, when he nailed the 95 Thesis to the door there in Wittenberg, Germany, uh, really wasn't trying to reform anything. He was shocked that everybody started calling him a heretic and, and that they gave him the so-called right foot of fellowship, you know, and kicked him <laughs> out. That shocked, that shocked him more than anything. And so Luther, when he started the Protestant movement and the rest of the Reformers, they they pulled with them all of that junk and baggage. So concerning eschatology, the Roman Catholic Church had had taught millennialism, you know, going back to the 4th century, to Augustine. And they taught that we're the reigning kingdom of God now on the earth, and of course they are the uh, the the vicar of Christ, the representatives of Christ, and so Luther and Calvin and all the rest of them dragged that bad eschatology with them, you know, into their new reformed movement. And the pro- the basic problem with reformed tradition is they assumed that there was no further progress to be made, and they took uh, Luther, Calvin, etc., and they fossilized them.
3: Ah. So yes. that's
2: why you, you can go into a Reformed church today, and it's part Protestant, part Catholic. It might be Protestant on the solas, but it's still Catholic in terms of its um, eschatology. So God had to raise up new people to use the same method of interpretation that the Reformers used to continue to rescue the church You know, in these areas where there was still muck on them, you know, from being dragged out uh, of the quicksand there. In fact, in that church that you go to, you can see where Luther, you know, baptized infants. Mm -hmm. And here, with this group here, we don't believe infant baptism is a biblical practice. But Luther dragged that into his church because he was Catholic. And so he he pulled a lot of stuff like that in, and that kind of, in my view, explains the state of a lot of the Protestant churches today.
0: Yeah. yeah. It's just re- it's so weird how Luther would completely move away from the Catholic Church in some things. For example, the Vulgate, translating the Bible, went all the way back to the Greek rather than using the, um, the Greek version the Roman Catholics use. Um, he completely went away from the salvation, right? The work salvation base. He went to the five solos, um completely different than the Roman Catholic Church. But then in other ways he stick very similarly. Um end times, infant baptism, plenty of other areas, um, priesthood, right? You or he moved away from that priesthood. But other things he'd stay very similar to the Roman Catholic Church. So it's just just interesting and it shows that it's really hard to make drastic changes in theology when that's when you've been raised in your whole life. He went, yeah. he went, he he was a monk, he 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 was raised in that tradition, he was raised in that. And he only spent the later part of his life, however long that was, I'm not sure. But he only spent the later part of his life studying that. So there's only a certain amount. There's only a certain how far he could go. He he couldn't go all the way. And that's where we as as we as believers, we as um um as studying the Bible, that's where we need to go. We shouldn't just stop with um, Luther. Yeah, in
3: um, you
2: know, some... in mean, particularly. Go, go ahead.
3: No.
0: Um,
2: well, I was just going to say particularly since. Uh, a thousand years. I mean, there you go. Correct. A thousand, over a thousand years in one generation. And another thing, real fast, is Luther's attitude towards the Jews.
3: Bad. You know, mm. he,
2: he had some really harsh things to say about him at the end of his life. And Luther, he didn't invent anti Semitism. That's what was taught all the way through the Middle Ages. You know, he just kind of carried that over. So. Yeah, Mm
3: -hmm. yeah. All right, people would be interested in knowing the difference between uh, literal translation and spiritualizing, uh, uh, or interpretation, I should say, not translation. And so I I think they'd be interested in that. And also you write about selective literalism. Let's hear some more about those.
2: Well, um, allegorical interpretation is basically the idea that you're using the text as a vehicle to bring in some kind of foreign meaning that's not found in the passage. So, you know, if you go back to Philo, for example, who was an allegorist way back, um, a little before the time of Christ, if I remember right, he taught that the four rivers in Eden The Euphrates, the Tigris, the Pashan, and the Gahan are really not four rivers. They're four parts of the soul. And I remember one of the early sermons I heard as a new Christian was the uh, gates there around the wall in Nehemiah 2. And there's a fish gate, and the preacher would say that represents evangelism. And there's the water gate, and that represents the Holy Spirit, etc., And so it's kind of like great sermon, wrong passage. (laughs) Because the passage is talking about that, and that's what allegorical interpretation is, and that's what gave the priests power, because the people were told that they were not the clergy, they were the laity. You know, we're the priests, and all we and us and us alone were the only ones that have this higher meaning. So your average person, even if they could read, they were told they couldn't even interpret the Bible on their own. And I think what rescued us from that is literal interpretation, where you try to take words and phrases in their ordinary sense. In other words, you're interpreting what's there rather than what's not there. And once once Luther moved in that direction, then it took the power away from the priests and put it back into the hands of the people. You know, where they could look into the Bible themselves and see that they were priests, too, and they didn't have to pay money to spring people out of purgatory. Yeah. Um, oh, and you asked, about the, you asked about the selective part of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that is the error of Reformed theology, in my humble opinion, is they will argue literal interpretation on the solas but when it comes to eschatology they suddenly become non-literal and all we're doing is dispensationalists. people think dispensationalism is so complicated but really all we're doing is taking the reformers hermeneutic and applying it to the whole bible you know including eschatology and once you do that then you start seeing that the israel church distinction God has a future Israel, you know, et cetera, et
3: cetera. Yeah, yeah. Okay, very good. Um, to you argue that Protestant churches linked to the Reformation have incomplete doctrine. The question that we want to ask is: Does that make them false teachers and heretics, uh, or and or and or are they still brothers in Christ?
2: Yeah, I, I, I am very um, reticent to use the word false teacher or heretic because to me, that's somebody who's unregenerate and unsaved. And I, I don't know, I, I don't like to use that word unless it deserves it. You know, to me, I would say they are brothers in Christ. They just don't have you – know, it's like Michael Jordan going out to play – but he's only going to play with his left hand or he's yeah. just going to you know, put his weight on one leg and not the other. I mean, you still got a basketball player. I mean, Michael Jordan could still beat any of us playing with one hand, but you're just not, you're not getting the complete Michael Jordan. And God has given us all 66 books and, you know, we're living in Satan's world and it's tough enough and we need to put on the full armor of God and not part of the armor. Yeah. So yeah. I, don't, I don't really like to say they're you know, unbelievers. Okay. I just think they don't have a complete picture.
3: Yeah, that's fair, very fair. Um, we, you mentioned in your book a, a little bit about the uh, supersessionists, or we could call them replacement theology folks. Um, I'm not sure you might put covenant theology in there as well. I think our folks would like to know what is that all about and why is it important?
2: Well, supersessionism is basically, comes from the word supersede. So it's the idea that the church has permanently superseded Israel in the plan and program of God. So all of Israel's blessings have been transferred to the church through a, and the only way to make it work is you have to deliteralize the promises. So they would say, like the um, Dead Sea coming back to life in Ezekiel 47, you know, they would allegorize that and make that the just regeneration. So they use this methodology to take all of Israel's unfulfilled promises and transfer them to the church. They call the church the New Israel and it's very interesting they never transfer the curses to the church they leave those behind for the jewish people yeah,
3: selective <laughs> indeed
2: yeah very selective and so that's what supersessionism is it goes by the name replacement theology uh, amillennialism um etc cetera, etc cetera. so they you know as dispensationalists we see a bunch of promises that god hasn't wrapped up with for israel meaning israel has a great future Yes. They look at it as those, you're taking those two literally. Uh, Those are really meant to be understood allegorically as referring to the church. And the church is now the main game, and Israel is done as a nation. Uh, Those are basically the two understandings as I understand them.
0: Yeah, Yeah, I was talking to somebody, I was talking about somebody about this, um, and the argument he brought up was how do we know who is a Jew nowadays? Right. How, how can you trace genealogies all the way back to Abraham? How, how can you do that? Um, what would your response to be to that? Would it be more of a nationality thing or would it be more, is it specifically genealogy? How would you respond to that?
2: Are you, I guess you're talking about Israel in the land now. Yeah. now exists. Mm-hmm. yeah. We had actually had a speaker address that. He was, um, he's basically a Jewish doctor. Uh, and his whole specialty is genetics and he basically debunked the myth, and I—you'd have to go to the Jabor uh, Seminary conferences to get that presentation. But he basically—I and could pull it up if I had a couple seconds. But mm-hmm. you know, he basically debunked, debunked the myth that the Jews in the land today aren't aren't real Jews, because there's this crazy Khazar theory floating around out there. I don't know if you've heard that. And anti-Semites love to use these kinds of theories because they're trying to argue that Israel in the land today is not actually Israel. But I think, you know, that gentleman's presentation pretty much debunked the idea that the Jews in, in the land today are not real Jews.
3: Yeah, no. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. I see we got Scott back. Looks like we're getting Scott yeah. back. There he is. Welcome back. Welcome to the show.
1: Andy, I wanted to ask you a question. Um, you mentioned in your book about Paul at Miletus meeting with the Ephesian elders, and he warned them of the false teachers that would come in on the church, would apostasy around them. Uh, was that a warning for that first century, second century generation, or does that permeate all the way down to us today and how do i identi- how do we identify that you know and you also talked about allegorizing the text and you know i we have some very good friends that are charismatic and and they talk about um, allegorizing a text to make it mean something that it doesn't seem to mean if you take it literal so is that an example of that or how do we piece all that together what are your thoughts on that
2: the elders at uh, at the church at Ephesus at my He was laying out a really important principle. He's saying you're not going to find truth in church history. You're going to find it in the writings and the teachings of the apostles. Because he makes a very clear statement that once the apostles die, uh, the church is going to depart from the truth. And so I think that's a great description of the thousand years of the dark ages, what he's talking about there. And predicting and it's what the Protestant reformers you know helped us climb out of by going back to the writings of the Apostles and every generation is hit with a new uh, winds of false teaching and we're in that battle today and we have to always keep going back to the Word of God to determine what's true I mean what's true is not what the Charismatics say it's not what I say it's not what the Roman Catholic Church says. You know, Luther was very clear that unless I am convinced by scripture and mm-hmm. sound reason, yeah. you know, I, you know, here I stand, I can do no other. That's why he called the book of Galatians his wife.
3: Yeah. I, th-
2: I think the German is Mein Frau. Yeah, I think so. And he was laying down the very important principle that Paul was talking about that after I leave, savage wolves will come in. So truth is going to have to be determined by what the scripture says, not based on who's popular or, you know, who, who has a, a sermon that appeals to the most people, uh, et cetera. Yeah,
1: um, yeah, between the 4th and the 16th centuries, you had the Dark Ages. Yeah. It almost seems to me that we're moving back into the dark ages with the authority being removed from scripture and now being given to man. You know, you go to most churches today and they're not preaching the scriptures. They're preaching their thoughts.
2: So what are your thoughts on that?
3: Yeah. This is by the way, where the emergent church I think comes in.
2: Yeah. Well, that's why I call this ever reforming because it's, we're in the same battle today that the reformers were in back then. Um, you know, it's kind of interesting that scriptural illiteracy in the Dark Ages was something that was imposed on the people. Uh, the scriptural illiteracy today is mm-hmm. sort of something that's not being imposed on us, but we've just decided to volitionally su- submit to it, you know, partly because we want to be entertained or... Pastors submit to it because they want to have the biggest church in town, and you don't always get the biggest church in town by teaching through the Book of Romans by <laughs> <First laughs> verse on Sunday morning.
3: Probably not. So there's
2: just there's just a lot of man centered, pragmatic things that have entered into ministry that I think to a large extent is leading us back into the dark ages. Except this time we're doing it to ourselves. You know, it's not something that's being imposed on us.
1: It's interesting. You talk about the Gutenberg Press, and that is one of the the elements that brought an end to the Dark Ages. The Bible was put in every man's hands. But it almost seems to me that in my lifetime, we've had a a revolution in ministry with media. And that almost seems to have the opposite effect of what um, the printing press did.
2: Yeah, um, one of the great tragedies of technology is we're not a literate culture anymore. And if you're not a literate culture, you can't be a Berean. You know, the Bereans search the scriptures every day. You know, it's interesting, the Bereans, they weren't uh, callous towards Paul. It says they searched the scriptures with eagerness, but they wanted to validate that the things Paul was saying were, were true. And you can't do that unless you can read. Um, and you have to have an attention span more than 20 minutes. Uh, a lot of people in church, you know, if you preach past the 12 noon, uh, it's like the unpardonable sin. You know, they start looking at their watches. And and so this, I think it's this entertainment culture that we're in has kind of pushed us in this direction. It's just more and more attacks to get us away from, you know, diligent Bible study. <laughs> if we're not doing diligent Bible study, then we're open to deception. Yeah. Um,
3: yeah, Scott and I have talked about we still preach expo- expositorily. and and that is like dying. It's uh, uh, We're like dinosaurs. We're going to become extinct because people no longer want to hear the word. And that's why I think we're in the end times one of the reasons why people don't want to hear um, the scriptures they want to hear feel-good stories uh, i'm always concerned about the church when you look on their website says bible-based preaching to me that says they read a couple of verses and then they tell stories it's kind of deceptive um can we go on to one other topic that we haven't done yet and that is the issue of dispensationalism uh why should People in the church um, believe in some kind of a dispensationalism. Well, let's say classic, because we have a new, newer one that's called progressive dispensationalism. What in the world is all that about? Well, I mean,
2: what is dispensationalism? Um, you know, you you all had Charles Ryrie as your professor, so. You know it better than me, but he taught the sine qua non of dispensationalism, which is Latin, which means without which there's not. Now, obviously, you take into account figures of speech when they're conspicuous of the text. But if a figure of speech is not in play, you take the Bible for what it says. And then he says what develops out of that is the Israel church distinction. I mean, you start to see very fast that God has separate programs for Israel and the church. And God's purpose in human history is doxological. You know, he works Mm -hmm. in history Mm -hmm. to glorify himself. So those three things make you a dispensationalist. You know, we can disagree about the furniture. (laughs) You may may have a different view of the timing of the Gog-Magog war than I have, but that's just... uh, That's an intramural discussion. I mean, we're all, on this podcast, we're all on the same page because we hold to those three things. And um, what you see with uh, a lot of people is they don't want to accept the first one. They don't want to take the whole Bible literally. Well, if you're not going to do that, then we're not on the same page in terms of dispensation. And all a dispensation is is an age. Uh, the, the Greek is oikonomia, oikos, house, mm-hmm. namos, law, house, rules. And when you take the whole Bible literally, you, you see that the plan of salvation is always the same. But God has different rules at different time periods. So obviously the rules changed in Genesis 3 because you've got death and marriage is difficult. Well, that wasn't in play in Genesis 1 and 2. So the rules changed. So a traditional dispensationalist like myself would see seven changes of rules. um, And we're in our own dispensation called the church age. And so that's basically what makes you a a dispensationalist. Now, you asked about progressive dispensationalism. I don't think it's either progressive nor dispensational. So it's, it's very misnamed. The whole, you know, Daryl Bach, uh, I used yep. to go to his church, and I knew him very well. His whole agenda was to build a bridge back to the... So he wasn't progressing at all. He was regressing.
3: Yeah, here you go.
2: And I don't think his movement can be called a uh, dispensational movement because he wouldn't accept... The first premise. The first premise is the whole Bible is literally. Well, Daryl Bach would tell you no. He takes the number 1,000 in Revelation. Says that's a literal number. And he's got, uh, comes up with a new hermeneutic called a complementary hermeneutic. Where the New Testament adds meanings that the Old Testament doesn't have. And that's how he's got Jesus reigning on David's throne currently. So he, he does a distinction between um, what Jesus is doing now versus what he will do in the future as king. And so I think Gerald and Craig Blazing, you know, I, I think their starting point is different mm-hmm. than ours. So I yep, don't those are the think two. they're progressive nor dispensational. Electronic they hold to the five to nine
1: instead of the five solos, they hold to the five denials. They deny Israel and the church are separate. They deny that there's a role for Israel in the future. They deny eschatology by omitting it completely. They deny church government by setting up uh, a different kind of political venture within the church and so forth. So um, is there any way that this can be completed. We talk about our ever-reforming. How is that going to come about? Or is that just a fool's errand, a hope? Can we ever reform the church and bring the whole church
2: back? Well, I, I don't think God, you know, I think we need to be faithful. And the results mm-hmm. are up to God. Um, I think the Protestant reformers were faithful. I don't think they ever could have imagined what God was going to do with their efforts and you know, what is, what's going to be said at the famous seat, hopefully well done, thy good and faithful servant, you know, not well done thy good and successful servant. So whether we can pull it off or not, I think that's God's job. And let's just do what we can do. I mean, there's stuff I can do right now. And there's stuff you all can do right now, you know, to help the church, get back to the truth. Maybe this podcast is the first baby step in a large, larger process. But I think we really uh, make a mistake when we put onto our own shoulders success or failure. You know, the church is God's program. He said the gates of the will not prevail against the church. What he calls us to do is to be faithful. Because I, I get discouraged too, like I, I can tell you guys do when you see the direction of the church, but I'm not sure God holds me
0: accountable for
2: everything. I just got to do what he's called me to do. There you
3: go.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So definitely, your book definitely changes changes a lot of directions people are going in. For example, a lot of people hold to the King James Version, assuming that that's the perfect book or the perfect version. And in reality, we shouldn't go back in time. We should be heading forward right? We should take what we know. More, more and more knowledge is coming out. Dead Sea Scrolls, for example, weren't found until the 1900s, right? Mm-hmm. King James Version was made in the 1600s, 400 years ago. Um, why, why hold to a version that old when we have more modern versions that, yes, they're not perfect. No version in English is going to be perfect, but they have more information they've taken into more account, um, stuff that's come up over the past hundred, few hundred years. So I guess the question I have for you mm-hmm. is, as things are changing... As the culture is moving more towards um, relativism, individuality, um, more collectivism, how can we as pastors, as teachers, as whatever, help people understand the Bible better? Because you, you have a YouTube channel. I, last time I checked, it had over 40,000 subscribers. That's pretty good. How, how, how do you do that? And how can we reach more people, younger people with the gospel and with this teaching? today you know something that's hotly
2: debated like I guess now the big thing is transgenderism which blows my mind I mean mm-hmm. I can't believe we're even talking about that but <laughs> and and show people how the word of God relates to that subject or you mentioned Marxism or collectivism I mean what does the Bible actually have to say about that? because the Bible, you know, is true in every area of life. It's not just a book about how to get to heaven. That's probably it's most important message to us, but it's also about, uh, how the Bible relates to every single area of life. And so what we really need today are people that can go to the word, understand the word correctly, but then they know how to apply it to the culture. And I think the unsaved world is dying to hear something like that. I think they're tired of opinions. You know, the saying goes, opinions are like it's, you know, everybody's got one (laughs) and uh, enough with opinions. What does the Bible say about the key issues of the day? I think that's one of our major callings. You know, Andy, I think Gary and
1: I are a little bit older than you, maybe 10, 15 years older. And when we grew up, people watch the same television programs, they listen to the same radio. The churches basically use the same Bible. There were some differences, but today the culture is is so um, separate in their interests, not only in uh, entertainment in the world, but in the church. The church seems to be divided and going all different areas. And so if the central issue that we're talking about here is the interpretation of scripture, literal versus an allegorical interpretation? How are we supposed to get back on the same page? Or do we just do our own thing and um, run our own little churches? Uh, can, we hope, I know that, uh, can we hope for a worldwide you know, um, evangelistic uprising of people and, and people coming to the Lord? Or is this the end times? I mean, how, how are we supposed to
2: deal with that? Yeah, well, you know, as I look at the Bible, um, every revival or reformation that's authentic, that God's the one in Nehemiah 8, uh, I was just reading with my daughter through 2 Kings, the reformation or revival that took place in the days of Josiah. It's always prefaced by a return to the word. It's sort of an acknowledgment that, you know, we've been neglectful about the Word of God. I would say that's what Luther and the Protestant Reformers did. They acknowledged the Word of God has been in neglect all of these centuries. So I think that's our, that's our clue, our cue. And we need to get back to the Word. It was said earlier, teaching the Bible in context— I think uh, one of y'all's emails you sent me talked about Bible study, melody, you know, Howard Hendricks type stuff, Uh, observation, interpretation, application, Mm -hmm. Um, Roy Zook and his book, Basics of Bible Interpretation. In other words, we got to get back to the Word and we got to teach people how to study the Bible on their own. And you start doing that, and a lot of things, I think, are going to get corrected just by a return to God's Word. (laughs) Gary?
3: Um, Actually, I think I'm good. I I think this is one of the things I've I've heard over and over in this um, interview with you, Andy, is the importance of just getting back to the Bible. And um, that's got to be our anchor, man uh and the holy spirit guiding our understanding of that uh, it's the it's going to be the one source of uh getting ba- getting the church back to where it needs to be um i'm kind of not as hopeful i do believe we're in the end times and uh where people just don't want to hear the word uh, actually i'm hoping for the return of christ you know I, i'm praying for that Maranatha, come more jesus you know Kind of a thing. Uh, in the meantime, I'm not a defeatist. Uh, I think we, I can do what I can do where, where God has planted me, and uh, and again, as usual, you have to leave the results up to Him. I'm just the steward. Uh, I'm just the the servant, slave, actually, and um, I speak for my master, and uh, that's so I. I I have to be careful. I don't take some of this stuff personally. Oh, they didn't like my teaching or whatever. You know, it's, a, it's a, who they? they're not rejecting me. They're
0: rejecting God. Mm-hmm. Yeah, make the most of the time we have, right? Don't give up. Make the most of it. Teach. Yeah. Share the gospel. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I believe
2: we're in the end times too. And I believe that we're in that season that, you know, Paul talked about with the itching ears. But we're still here. So, ah. <laughs> obviously, the fact that we're still here, God wants us to do something. And it's just a matter of finding what that is and pressing into that purpose. And, again, I don't think we're going to be evaluated by our success. No. It's are we faithful to what God has called us to do? And I think we need to think about that, the Bema Seat judgment, a lot.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And if so-and-so and so-and-so gets mad because my sermons go post-noon noon, or I've been in the Book of Romans too long, I want an eight-week series on life, go down the street to another church. Yeah, it's painful when that happens, but I'm not accountable to them. I'm accountable to the Lord. Yeah,
1: We got, yeah. We got thrown off a little bit by the technical problems we were having here. Um, and it looks like we're disconnected from Andy again. So, um, you know, it made it a little bit difficult to keep your, keep your thoughts straight and um, sort of articulate what you wanted to and get, at least for me, it has been that way. But um, yeah. Andy talks about ever reforming. And um, in other words, finishing the reformation that took place. I'm not sure that that's possible anymore. You know, uh, when I was younger, dispensationalism was the voice that was being heard on the radio. Dr. McGee, you know, you had uh, um, radio Bible class out of Michigan, you had Swindoll, you had all these people. And now it seems like that's no longer true. So instead of the the Reformation being completed, it's almost like we're stuck in the 1600s and they haven't moved past that and they don't wanna move past that. And so, I get it, we're supposed to be faithful where we're at. We're supposed to do the best we can and understand that the Lord's gonna judge us on the opportunities that we have at the Bema Seat and how we use them. Yeah, but, but we all wanna ha- have a, a bigger vision for what can be. It, looks, it, it seems to me that we're, we're going backwards, not only in our country as politically and socially, but
2: also in the church. Do you think those are tied together? I generally think that as the church goes, the nation goes. Yeah. And um, I think it was uh, Alexis de Tocqueville, you know, the Frenchman. Yes. Early 1800s. And he tried to ascertain what makes America tick. Why is it successful? And he figured out really fast it was the church and Christianity. And he had seen nothing similar happening in – France, you know, where Mm -hmm. he was from and he, you know, his book democracy in America and other things he wrote clearly documents that. So, you know, we can get all mad about politics. I I, I guess I'm a little bit more concerned about the state of Christianity because if the state of Christianity was different, the political scene, you know, might be different also since we elect leaders at least supposedly. I don't know about this last election, but...
3: (laughs) There you go.
0: We would all agree with that one. Yeah, well, I think think that covers all the questions we had. Um, We thank you for coming on. Again, we apologize for the technical difficulties. It went so well last time. (laughs) Kind of got complacent, but um, apologize for that. Um, I'll I'll edit it at at the end, um, make it sound as good as I can. Um, But for you, is there any for our listeners who want to learn more, is there any website you have, any social media they can go to? What, what plug do you want to put in here that they can go to learn more about you?
2: Yeah, sure. Um, as far as the technology, that's the prince and power of the air. Agree. <laughs> <laughs> Agree. Uh, <laughs> but in terms of keeping up with me, um, if people go to our website, Sugarland Bible church, www.slbc.org. You know, they can keep up with all of our verse by verse biblical teachings and all that stuff is archived, you know, going back uh, a decade. And as you mentioned, I do have a YouTube channel. Just type in Andy Woods into your YouTube search engine and you should be able to sign up for that if people are interested. We upload things there probably about three to four times a week. Um, I do have a website called AndyWoodsMinistries.org where they can learn of the recent books that I've written. I just wrote a brand new one on Babylon called Babylon, the Prophetic Bookends of History. And uh, if people are interested in seminary training, um, they could go to www.chafer.edu www.chafer, uh, not to be confused with Schaefer, as in Francis Schaefer, this is Willis Sperry Schaefer, and you can see based on how we name that that we're trying to get back to the original vision, yeah, that Schaefer had and not move in this progressive, so called progressive dispensational direction. So, those would be the easiest ways to keep up with me if people are interested.
0: Yep, I've definitely visited the chief website, looking at that school for the future. Also, I know Instagram, you you post there pretty often, and I I like the conversations that come from that.
1: Well, Andy, we want you to know how much we appreciate you and your ministry. We recommend you to other people. I'm currently retired. Um, Gary's still preaching. He thought he was going to retire recently, but um, that
3: didn't work out. Yeah, I'm trying to, but I'm still here. (laughs) but what we
1: wanted to communicate to you was we appreciate your ministry and you're a voice crying in the wilderness. You're a classic dispensationalist. You have free grace like we are. Um, Mm -hmm. Well, is there anything else any of you guys wanted to ask Andy before we let him go?
3: No, I think we're good.
0: Yeah. I think we covered everything.
3: Thanks for the time.
0: Yeah. Yes.
1: I apologize. It was so disjointed, but that was because of the technology not working. And, um, Hopefully we can get that corrected before we have our next podcast. So really appreciate you. Love you, man. You encourage me all the time. And uh, I don't mind listening to you for an hour, hour and five minutes sometimes,
0: okay.
3: My,
1: my wife loves you and your teaching. And so um, we just want you to know how much you are appreciated. And it's, it's not you, Andy. It's what you're teaching. It's it's what God is doing in and through you. So we appreciate you. Keep up the good work. And hopefully some point down the road, I'm going to um, Duluth in October. Maybe I can maybe I can see you there. Great. Um, if there's nothing else, we can let you go. And thank you for your time. God bless you.
2: I just want to communicate you guys are equally encouraging to me. Ah, good. So thank you. Good. Awesome. All right. God bless you. Alright,
0: yep. we'll we'll see you next time. God bless you. Thank you, sir. Alright, bye. 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 Thank you.